Morning, church. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning, verses 11 through 21. So turn there with me if you would. I do appreciate the emphasis on Easter this morning. Maybe I'm the only one, but it does feel like Easter is sneaking up on us this year. I can't believe it's only, only four weeks away. And so um, I do hope that you're intentionally using this time for family discipleship, um, whether it's with your children or your grandchildren, selecting um, books to read, things to um, talk with them about as we prepare for this season so that it's more than just free candy, um, but a time really to remember on the sacrifice that, that the Lord made, and a great opportunity to have those gospel conversations with your children and grandchildren as you go through this season. So I hope you are taking some time to prepare and make an intentional plan um, for this season. So with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer as we open the word together. Father, we do quiet our hearts before you this morning, and we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have not left us alone and that you have not been silent to us in this world, but you have spoken to us um, through your word and through your son. And so we thank you for the revelation that we have through them. Father, we pray that as we open your word today, you would speak to us anew through this passage. Um, We pray that you would help us to be convicted of new truths as we look at this, that we would come away with an appreciation for your character and your nature and what you have accomplished through us, uh, for us through salvation. And so we do thank you for those truths that we see even in this passage. So Lord, we ask for your help. Would you help us to understand um, what you've written in scripture for us? Would you give us help in applying it to our lives and knowing how we ought to live? And so we submit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was enrolled in uh, Dallas Seminary, Leanna was working full-time as an editor for Insight for Living Ministries. And so just by nature of me being in our apartment a little bit more often, I had a little bit more responsibility for some of the food prep and the meal preparation that we did as a family which I know you're all thinking, clearly God must exist, and he must be a gracious, benevolent God if Leanna and I survived that season of our marriage. Yes, it's true. Things are in much better hands now that she is handling most of our our food prep and and meal planning, and I'm not involved in that quite as much anymore. And this story is going to illustrate why that is very true. But the one week we had decided that we were going to make chili um, for supper that night, and I love chili, and so I was very excited to make chili and to, to have this dish with Leanna. And so I was doing the meal prep for it, I had fried the meat, I was cutting up all the vegetables, you know, doing all of that, and I came to the part where we had to add the spices. And so I reach up into our spice cabinet, and I grab a big jar of red spice, right? Because the only red spice you would have in your cabinet would be chili powder, Right? Obviously, obviously. So I grab that, that powder, I dump the appropriate tablespoons into the pot of chili, I put it back, and I don't think anything more of it until Leanna walks in the door from, from work and goes, what is that smell? I said, it's chili. I'm making chili. She said, that doesn't smell like chili. What did you put in it? So I pull out the red jar of chili powder, obviously, and find out it's not chili powder, it's curry powder. And so I put tablespoons of curry powder in our chili, and so it smelled like an Indian restaurant rather than, you know, a a pot of chili. Now, 
To her credit, right, most wives would have said, all right, you screwed up the meal, you're going to get me Chick-fil-A tonight. There's no way we're eating that. To her credit, she sat there and ate the curry chili with me. And not only did she eat it with me, but she, she went so far as to say, you know, this really doesn't taste too bad. It doesn't taste like chili, but it doesn't taste too bad. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe that shows how desperate most of our meals were, right? <laughs> well, at least we're not eating beans and rice tonight. <laughs> so... Uh, but I had, I had made a new creation. I had made a new creation, something that had never been tried before, never seen before, and certainly was the result of creative activity, whether it was intentional or not. It was a very creative dish, right? And so when we look at uh, Paul's words in, in 2 Corinthians here, he describes us as a new creation as well, and that's exactly what he means by using that word, not that we're a pot of chili, but that we are something that has never been seen before, never tried before, and the result of creative action. And fortunately, the creative, the new creation that God makes in us and in his people is a whole lot better than the new creation I cooked up in my pot of chili that night. And so the new creation that we have in, or that we are because of Christ is a result of his reconciling work in the world. He comes into the world to reconcile the world to himself through Christ. And the way in which he does that is by making us a new creation. And so as we walk through this passage, Paul actually kind of walks through it in an inverted order. He begins with our purpose in life, and he says, our purpose in life is no longer to please ourselves, or I'm sorry, no longer to live for ourselves, but instead to live for the Lord. And so that's what he begins with. But then he provides justification and validation for that premise as he works through the rest of the passage. The reason we live for the Lord is because we're a new creation, and the reason we're a new creation is because of the reconciling work that God has done in our hearts. And so if we think about this in the reverse order, God reconciles us to himself by making us a new creation so that we can live a life for him. That's the purpose that Paul is talking about in this passage. That's his goal as he works through this. His application is that we would commit to live a life not for ourselves, but a life for God. And the foundation for that comes from the fact that we are a new creation that has been reconciled to God. And so with that, we pick up in chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are of sound mind, it is for you." For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so we ended last week with that discussion of the Bema Seat Judgment, or Bema Seat Judgment, okay? And so that, that promise of judgment for God's people, not judgment between the lost and the saved, but judgment among the elect, among the saved. Um, rewarding and recompensing for our deeds in this life. And so, as he comes off of that truth, he goes into this phrase, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but are made manifest to God. And so, Paul is returning to this theme that he develops throughout the entire book of 2 Corinthians, and it's the theme of justifying his ministry as an apostle. Where does he place his worth and where does he ground himself? How does he justify this ministry as the Corinthians continue to accuse him of not being a legitimate apostle? 
And so we see him returning to that theme in this beginning section where he says, I make myself manifest to God. I make my ministry and myself known to the Lord, and I look to the Lord for justification for what I'm doing. I don't look to the praise of men or the commendation of others to approve my ministry, but I make myself manifest to the Lord. And that raises Paul's uh, commitment and, and his belief in his own integrity and purity to a very high level. If he's willing to go straight to the Lord and say, I, I commit myself to the Lord to evaluate my motives, you have to know that he believes he is pure and authoritative before the Lord. But he goes on from there, and he says, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but we're giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you can give an answer to those who question our ministry. And so again, it's this bearing witness to the authority that he has, the authenticity of his ministry, and proving that before the audience who, who is asking. Now, these couple of verses, verses 11 through 13, we'll be looking at more in depth on Wednesday night. And so if you come out for our Wednesday night Bible study, I, I would invite you to come out for that, but we'll be looking at those verses more in depth um, during that time. So if you have questions, do come out um, for that time together. But those verses are just providing justification for his ministry before the Corinthian church. And so in verse 13, we get another transition. He's transitioning from talking about his ministry and his philosophy of ministry to talking about this wonderful theology that we talked about um, in our introduction. So verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So as Paul is giving justification and validation for his ministry, why he does what he does, his primary reason for it is the love of Christ controls me. Now, that word for control means boundaries that prescribe our behavior. So it's, it's the boundaries of what he does. What causes Paul to do what he does is the love of Christ. That's what he means by the love of Christ controls us. Now, I think this is really interesting because as I mentioned in verse 11, the first thing that Paul says for a motivation is what? The fear of the Lord, Right? The fear of the Lord is what causes him to persuade men. And then just a couple of verses later, he's saying that it's the love for Christ that motivates him and causes him to engage in this ministry. Now, if we think about this the way our culture views things, those things are, are mutually exclusive, most often in our culture, right? A, a holy and just God and a loving God cannot be reconciled in the eyes of our culture. We don't view those things as coming together. And so either you have a holy God or you have a loving God. And I think Paul perfectly makes the point in the argument here that God is a loving God, and we know He's a loving God only because He's a holy God. If you have a loving God who is not holy, that's not really love. But the fact that God is holy, He is set apart, He does take sin so seriously, and yet, in the midst of that, He chooses still to love us and to make uh, the ability for us to be reconciled to us shows his love so much more than if he were just a loving God. And so those two, two things are, are held in tension there. But what does Paul mean when he says it's the love of Christ that controls us? What's he really talking about? Well, I think there's two ways that the love of Christ motivates and encourages Paul as he does ministry. The first, I believe, is the love that Christ has for Paul. As Paul engages in ministry, as he serves, as, he's, as he bears witness to the word, 
What gives him security and comfort and strength to do that is the knowledge that God loves him personally and individually, that God has saved him and redeemed him. And it is out of that security and that identity that Paul can perform his ministry. And so there's that security that controls everything that Paul does. That's a wonderful place to minister from because Paul's not looking to the crowd. He's not looking to others to affirm his ministry or to give him commendation. He's secure in his his identity with Christ. And so I think that's one thing that Paul says as he says the love of Christ controls us. But the other is I think that Paul views himself as a conduit for the love of Christ. And so as he engages in ministry, as he speaks and bears witness and and testimony with the church, his goal in everything that he says is to bear testimony to the love of Christ and communicate Christ's love to those who he's witnessing to. And so this is getting into later in our chapter as he talks about this ministry of reconciliation where God removes the enmity between himself and mankind, and that is caused by his love. And so I think in those two ways, it is the love of Christ that controls Paul's ministry. But notice where he goes with the love of Christ. You know, we already have this tension in our culture between God's holiness and his wrath and God's love. But even more than that, some people misspeak about God's love because they misdefine God's love. And and it's amazing that this is coming up in the passage because we just talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Um, liberal Christian or or progressive Christians are prone to define God's love as permission. God's love equals permission. And so if God loves me, I'm allowed to remain in my homosexual relationship and that identity that I have because God loves me. And because God loves me, I'm allowed to remain in this fornicating relationship with my partner. Because God loves me, I'm allowed to remain angry and irritable with my children because God's a God of love. And so we interpret God's love as permission. But notice where Paul goes in this passage. That's the farthest thing from his mind when he talks about the love of Christ. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Okay, so what's the one who died for all? Yeah, Sunday school answer. Come on, guys. Can't get any easier than that, right? Jesus. And so we obviously get that. That's, of course, an example of love. Jesus died for the elect. Of course, that's an example of love. We didn't deserve his love. We didn't deserve his death. And so that's the paramount example of love. But then, what else is motivated by the love of Christ? I know this is a little harder. You have to read the next part of the verse. All died. All died. So yes, Christ is an example of love and his death on the cross, but his love is also evidence in the fact that his people have died to sin. That's the example of Christ's love. Christ's love isn't found by remaining in your sin. Christ's love for you is found in the fact that he frees you from the bondage of sin and death. That is the love of Christ. And so the love of Christ doesn't allow you to remain in your sin The love of Christ doesn't give you permission to continue in your sin. The love of Christ calls you to die to sin. In fact, it puts sin to death so that you now can live for him. Now, Paul puts a finer point on that as we continue reading in verse 15. 
And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And so what's God's purpose in causing you to die to sin? His purpose is so that you would no longer live for yourself, but you would live for him who died and rose again. I think that's a great summary of the Christian life. One of the simplest statements you'll find in Scripture, we as believers no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. That's what we're called to do. One of the simplest statements you can say, one of the simplest things you commit to, and yet the hardest thing to do with your life. We are hardwired as human beings to live for ourselves. And so last week, we talked about the fact that we are called to please the Lord, not ourselves. And Paul follows up on that with a similar statement. And so just like we can approach every decision and say, in this decision, I have the choice to please myself or to please the Lord. In every decision you make, you have the choice to live for yourself or to live for the Lord. And so the call that every believer must follow and heed is the call to live for the Lord. And so that's something I want everyone in this room to evaluate this morning. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care if you're a new believer or you've been a Christian your whole life. We all have to examine our lives on the basis of this statement. How am I living for the Lord in my life and where am I living for myself? Perhaps it's how I use my time and and that stubborn um, need to spend more time in God's Word on a daily basis. Knowing that you need to do a quiet time, knowing that you need that personal discipline to be in the Word, and yet you struggle to get up a little bit earlier, or you struggle to get off social media at night so that you can spend time in God's Word. Perhaps that's how you need to stop living for yourself and instead live for the Lord. Maybe it's how you think about your finances and your money, where you think the Lord is giving you these possessions just to use for yourself in your own gratification, rather than using them to glorify God and to serve and honor Him. Maybe it's how you think about your marriage or your parenting, where where these people that are in my household exist simply for me to have enjoyment. And when they impinge upon my enjoyment, I need to push them away. Rather than viewing your commitment to your family as an area for you to serve and to disciple your children and to serve your wife. And so, in every decision, in every part of life, we have to make that commitment to live for the Lord rather than live for ourself. Now, you may think that's impossible, and you would be right. You would be right. Living that way is impossible if we seek to do it in our own strength, and that is why God has made us a new creation. We're not doing it in our own strength or our own ability anymore. We are doing it through the work that Christ has already done in our hearts. So let's continue on to, to look at what he says. Verse 16 Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. So what's Paul trying to say with this verse? Well, let's look at what he says about Christ. Although we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. So I think what Paul is saying there is that there was a period in time where Paul knew about Christ, but just as a human being. He knew about Christ just as another man or another teacher, and he did not acknowledge the fact that Christ was anything more than that, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, the one who could provide this new life for the people that he was saving. And so there was a time where Paul related to Christ just in the flesh, but that is no longer. 
Now he knows who Christ is. He knows the reality of his divinity. He knows what he can provide for salvation. And so now he relates to Christ in this way, knowing who he really is as the Son of God and and the Messiah. And so Paul uses that as an example of how we ought to relate to one another. Previously, we related to one another in the flesh, but now we are called to relate to one another in the Spirit. And and that sounds more complicated than it really is. It really just means that previously we would have evaluated people based on external things, based on how successful they were in their career, what kind of house they had, how much money and possessions they were able to accrue. And those were the things that would have mattered and were valued to us. But now, Paul says, we relate to one another on the basis of this new creation. And we evaluate people not based on their externals, but we evaluate them based on the quality of their character based on who they are in their walk with the Lord, what kind of a relationship they have with Him. And that is how we relate to one another now that we are this new creation. And so then he gets into describing this new creation. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. So the most important thing to notice about this entire passage is often just an aside or an assumption. And it's the fact that all of these things happen only when we are in Christ, only when we are united with Him. And so our salvation and all of the benefits that we have from Christ are found through our union with Him. And so union with Christ is not an afterthought to our theology or to how we think about our relationship with the Lord, but union with Christ is the very foundation of how all of these benefits are communicated to God and his, through God to his people. And so it is in Christ that we have this new creation. But what does Paul mean when he talks about a new creation? I think the reason he talks about a new creation or his emphasis on new creation here is to show the fact that we truly are dead to our old nature. We truly are dead to sin. We are so dead that God doesn't just rehab our outer man in order to make us more Christ-like. He doesn't just knock out some walls or put on a new coat of paint in order to make us look more acceptable. He doesn't whitewash over all the bad parts in this sin. God drops a nuclear bomb on our sin nature and destroys it. And in the, the remains of that, he builds this new creation. I like to think about it like a car battery, right? Now, I'm terrible when it comes to car batteries. I just am. And I'll admit it. it. Maybe it's a sin issue. I don't know. But, you know, your car battery, when it's cold, it starts to have struggle starting, right? And any sane person at that point goes, I should probably go buy a new battery. But not me. I think I can drive this car another couple thousand miles. It'll be fine, right? It's supposed to be a joke. I know I, I, know I have a problem, okay? I know. And so, you know, you, you, you drive it, and it has trouble starting for a while, and then it leaves you sit somewhere, right? But there's enough juice in the battery that you can jump it, and somebody can give you a jumper cables, and they can jump your car, and you can, you can drive again, right? So there's enough life left in that battery that you can still jump it. But eventually, you get to the point where you've driven that car and that battery so long that there is no life left in it, there is no juice left to jump, and it is dead, right? And so your only option is what? You have to go get a new battery. You have to go get a new battery. And so that's what Christ, or that's what God does through Christ. There is nothing in our old nature that He can rehab or renew to make us a new creation. 
He starts over completely. He destroys the old nature so that we are a new creation as we live before the Lord. That's what he does. And so that's why he talks about the new, creation, the new creature. It's, it's to draw our emphasis on how dead the old man is. That is not who we are anymore. In fact, that is so dead that God made a new creature in its place. That's what he has done through Christ in us. And so when we hear that command to live for the Lord, not ourselves, that comes from the fact, or, or we're able to do that because God has killed that old nature. He has killed the old man. And we now have this new nature through Christ. That's the only way we're allowed to do that. So what does he mean by the old things are done away? The old things are the godless, self-centered way that we formerly lived. That is now done. That is gone. That no longer has any power over us. And instead, we are a new creation before God. Now, are we still going to struggle with sin in this life? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, aren't, uh, we don't believe that we'll ever attain perfection in this life. That's not something that, that God has created us for. Perfection comes in the life that is to come. And so we will struggle with sin as long we, as we are constrained by these earthly bodies. But as we struggle with sin, we do so knowing that this is who we are, knowing that we are a new creation in Christ and we live for Him, not for ourselves. The final thing I want you to think about with this idea of of a new creation is when you see a beautiful work of art, when you see a beautiful sculpture or a beautiful painting, you don't look at that painting and say, wow, look at what that canvas did. That's an amazing canvas that it could create such a beautiful painting, right? You don't look at that, that sculpture and say, look at what that block of marble could do, right? What's the purpose of that creation? Who gets the glory for the beauty of that work of art? It's always the artist. It's always the creator. And so in our lives, this new creation is is not a reason for us to become arrogant, a reason for us to become prideful or to, to take pride in what we've done or accomplished, but it's always to put glory to our Father, to say, look at what the creator has done. Look at what he is able to do. And God receives the glory for that new work of creation that's done in our hearts and in our lives. Okay, so we're tracing this backwards, kind of doing an inverted flow. The, the goal that we have as believers is to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord or for the Lord, not for ourselves. We do that because we are a new creation. We're a new thing that God has created. The old is dead. But how does God accomplish that new creation? And so here's where we get the final foundation and truth. He creates these new creatures through his work of reconciliation. Verse 18. Now all of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, and we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the way that God makes us a new creature, the way he makes us a new creation is through his work of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the setting aside of enmity and the restoration of friendship. 
That's what God has accomplished for us. And so when you hear the word reconciled, what's implicit in that statement is enmity. You know that at one point there was hostility between these two parties. If they're being reconciled, that means at some point there was something that drove them apart, that separated them. And so for us, in our relationship with God, the the enmity was caused by our sin. It was our sin that drove a wedge between our relationship with God, the relationship between God and humanity. That is the enmity that must be dealt with. That's the elephant in the room anytime we talk about a relationship with God. And what's fascinating is the world often looks at that enmity, looks at that separation, and it blames God for that separation. It says, God is so harsh, God is so judgmental that he won't accept me the way I am. But in reality, what Scripture tells us is we are the ones who need to take responsibility for the separation we experience with God. It is our sin that is at the root of that separation and that enmity. And so if you think about that for a moment, we are the ones at fault. We are the ones that are guilty for that enmity. But who is the one who acts in order to restore the relationship? It is the pure and blameless one. The one who has done nothing wrong to create the separation, yet it is him who does the act of reconciliation. Even while we were enemies, he comes to us and urges us to be reconciled to him. Now remember we talked about the love of Christ. That is the love of Christ. That is what God does for his people. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't have to. He wasn't obligated in any means to reconcile himself with his creation and humanity. And yet, he took it upon himself to be reconciled with his people. And so the act of reconciliation is nothing that you and I can take credit for. We are passive recipients of the reconciliation that God does for us. We receive that restored relationship from God. It is not something we can earn or even contribute to. And so how does God reconcile himself with his creation? How is it possible for God to say that he doesn't count their trespasses against them anymore? Well, that's the importance of verse 21. Jesus is the reason our trespasses are no longer counted against us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And so it is Christ who took the penalty and the punishment that we deserved. The death that we deserved as a result of our separation from God, Christ took on our behalf. And when he was our substitute and took our place, then he had the opportunity to give us his righteousness as well. And so we are reconciled to God because of Christ, because of what Christ has done, because he took on our sin and gave us his righteousness. And so Paul ends, I'm going to back up a little bit, he ends with verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so in, in the front of Paul's mind, this whole passage, again, is justifying his ministry. If this is the ministry that we have, if this is what God has done for a lost world, then what is our role in it as ministers? We are just ambassadors. We don't have anything that we can contribute to that. All we are to do is to bear witness and testimony to the work that God has done. That marvelous message of reconciliation is all 
that we should bear witness to or testify about. And so for the Corinthian church, it's not about your talents. It's not about your abilities. It's not about how much money you have. But the thing that matters is that you bear witness to the reconciliation that God is doing in this world, that you would be an ambassador for that message. And so that's the whole reason Paul talks about all of these things, to say that his job description is to be an ambassador for a God who is reconciling this world in Christ. And that is what we are called to as well. That is our goal and our role in this world and this culture. But the last thing is to end with his, his challenge. He says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so Paul knew that even within the Corinthian church that he was writing to, that had heard him speak and that had witnessed his ministry, there were those who had not taken that step to be recon- reconciled with Christ, who were still allowing that enmity to exist between God and themselves. And he urges them, be reconciled today. And so as we conclude today, we would be remiss if we didn't spend time making that same plea with you as well. If you have never taken that step to be reconciled with God, the good news that we have through Scripture is that reconciliation is available. You can remove the enmity and the judgment that sin causes in your life. You can be reconciled to God. But it comes at recognizing that Jesus Christ was God He came on this earth, he lived a perfect life, and he died in your place. And he makes his righteousness available for you. It's not something you can earn. It's a free gift that you accept. And so if you've never done that today, and if your goal was to be reconciled to God today, I would urge you not to leave this place without talking to someone here so that you can deal with that and be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful passage of Scripture. There is so much truth and application in it. We could spend weeks just talking about what is here. We're grateful for Christ, for the substitution that he provides for us, for taking our place and taking our judgment and providing righteousness for us. And we're grateful that you've made us a new creature and that because that old man is dead, we now can live for you. And so, Father, help us all to examine our lives anew with that challenge, to look at how we can live our life for you, whether it be in our time, our possessions, our activities, whatever it may be. Lord, would your spirit work in our hearts to convict us today of how we can live more for you. So Lord, we do thank you for who you are. Thank you for the work of reconciliation you've done in our hearts. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.